Grab your Bibles, your phones, or however you access Scripture. Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be. If you need a Bible, there's some Bibles at the back on a little tray table back there. Um, those are loaners that you could borrow. You can even keep it if you'd like. Uh, you're welcome to do that. Sorry if you have one of those Bibles. I can't tell you uh, what the page number is or anything like that because I didn't check ahead of time. But we will be in the book of Acts. Uh, I guess you can turn to the middle and start going to the right, I guess. Um, we'll be in the book of Acts in chapter 1. And uh, let's read this passage together. We'll be starting Acts 1, starting at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and, the Mar and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what we've seen you do in our four years of history. Thank you for even just these recent positive reports of the financial health of the church and these stories of life change and these stories of what it means to be a community that has a presence on the west side. And Jesus, we recognize that you are the head of the church. Your word clearly describes you and, and declares you as the head of the church. And we don't want to get that twisted. We never want to think that it's about us, but it's always about you. And we thank you, Lord, for um, just the way that you've, we've seen you working, and we, we know that it can only be explained uh, by a work of your spirit. And Lord, as we get into this text now, into this passage, as we see some of the beginnings of the early church, we pray that you use this opportunity for us to be able to see ourselves in it and to be challenged and encouraged as far as what, may, what it can look like to be fully engaged in the mission of God together. In your name we pray, amen. All right. You know what it's like when uh, you're watching your favorite Netflix show? I'm sure nobody knows that, right? But you're watching your favorite Netflix show, and um, you get to the end of a particular episode, the very end, and then the storyline changes in such a way that something significant happens in the story, and then what happens next? The episode's over. And you're left hanging. It's like, oh, oh, what am I going to do? i got to find out what happens next. And so that's why this thing called net, uh, binge watching Netflix happens is because we then jump to the next episode. Why? Because we need that thing to be fulfilled. We're, we're struck with this reality and this sense of anticipation and this buildup from the previous episode and this cliffhanger moment, and we've got to figure out what's going on. We want to satisfy that by moving on to the next episode. Or the worst is when it happens at not... Uh, or, or actually, and then if, if that's from episode to episode, imagine what that's like when, and we've all lived this out, what it's like at, at the season finale. Oh, what am I going to do? I have to figure out how I'm going to live my life <laughs> and what to do with my life until the next season is finally released, and then we binge watch all those episodes. And then there's the series finale, and that's where we just lose all hope, right? <laughs> Don't know what we're going to do with our lives. And we're left this, now what? What do I do now? While it's not a direct correlation and a direct example, this is something of what the early church is experiencing here and the followers of Jesus are experiencing here as we see in our text. What has just happened is that Jesus has risen from the dead. The disciples are looking back at what had happened over the previous three years of, of being in ministry with them. It was just three years that he walked the earth. 
And, and then, of course, more recently, this occurrence and this, this traumatic event and this significant thing of the, the resurrection following his crucifixion. And now they just want to know what's next. We see that in verse 6. And they're asking about what's next. You've been telling us that things are going to be different, things are going to change. Is this where you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And is this where you're going to restore our national sovereignty? And Jesus says in verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. So Jesus is basically saying, this is not something that you need to know. You don't need to know how it's all going to play out, but there is something I do want you to be aware of. You see, they were thinking that it was sort of the series finale. And Jesus is like, no, we're just, we're just getting started. We're just getting started. Verse 8 says, and this is Jesus' words to them, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you're going to receive power to be my witness. And a witness is to be someone that has certain information or knowledge and can bring something to light. And Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, he's saying that you're going to, my, my followers are going to be empowered to do that to, and to be that. And then it's so strange because sort of in the midst of all of this, Jesus is commissioning them to, to be his witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit after three years that he spent with them. And it all leads up to this critical moment, this commissioning, where he speaks of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then he splits. He just starts, I think the text he says he's lifted up. He just starts levitating, basically. And he, he ascends back into heaven, and his followers are just left there staring and gazing into the sky. So what, what is that about? In, the, in this moment where if, if we're just getting started and we've only been together for three years and there's more to do and, 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 and all of that, why would you leave in this moment? And, and John chapter 16 sheds a little light on that for us. And Jesus is saying, he says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And this is a passage that uh, Pastor Rick Atchley uh, from our supporting church from Fort Worth spoke on when he was here over the summer. And uh, we, we learned about that. So Jesus departs with the promise that he would send the Holy Spirit to them to empower them to be his witnesses. And this, what I want to do is I want to look now at, okay, who exactly is, him, is, he, is Jesus speaking to? Who are these people that are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses? And we see from verses 12 through 14 some of these people. Of course, there's the, the notable mention of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's had this mind-blowing experience of being the mother of the Messiah. We have his brothers who must have had a, a rather interesting childhood. I wouldn't want Jesus as a brother because every time something goes wrong, it's always my fault, not his. Um, uh, but... It's interesting that scripture actually says that his brothers throughout his ministry did not believe in him. But here they are here. We have a zealot who was, who was a, a, this rebel that wanted to overthrow Rome with military might. And then we have the tax collector who was employed by Rome to tax the Jewish people. Mentioned not have been the zealot's favorite person, that's for sure. So there's, there's tension there. And then we have um, Peter who was one of Jesus' followers, but he let a little girl intimidate him, which led him to deny Jesus three times on the night that Jesus was arrested. And then we have the rest of the disciples, who on the night that Jesus was arrested just abandoned, they just abandoned Jesus, not the kind of people that you would normally want to entrust a lot of ministry to. And then there are at least two sets of brothers, which could have been a good thing until they start fighting over who Jesus loves the most. And then there was, a, of course, Thomas, this very well-known story, who said, I'm a, sure, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm included in this, but I'm not going to believe that Jesus has raised, risen from the dead unless I place my finger in the holes of his hands and in his feet made by the nails on the cross. And so this is some of who Jesus is speaking to. This is who... This is part of that gathering, that group of people that would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to... Um, 
to be his witnesses to the world. But as you look at this group, we see that Jesus really apparently had a way of bringing people together. This group of people coming together, man, it could have been a complete mess, a total disaster. Not exactly the all-stars that we would think would be suitable to be pillars in the early church. But the Holy Spirit would come upon them and would rearrange their hearts and their minds so that all these people could come together as one, with one heart, one mind, and in one accord. So the question is, what does it take to unite people around a common cause? How do you take people from various backgrounds, different worldviews, who've had different life experiences, people from different social strata, and unite them. This was the challenge of the early church. And it's not just the challenge of the early church, it's the same challenge that we face as well. I want to show you a picture. Check that out. You recognize it? That is the west side. That's not even just the west side. That's half of the west side. It basically goes from the four or five over. So we see it down at the bottom here, Marina del Rey and all that kind of stuff, up through Venice and into Santa Monica. That's just half of the west side. The west side has, about, has over 530,000 people living in it. And if this is half, that makes it about 265,000 people represented there. Derek, if you could keep that up. I want you to think about the people represented here and imagine in your mind the other side of that even. Imagine these people. Most of the people that are living here, that are in this shot, aren't even from LA. Where are they from? Other cities, other states, even other countries. So many stories represented here. So you wonder, what are they living for? What makes them tick? What are their passions? What are their backgrounds? What are their experiences? What are the things that matter to them? Some of the people in this shot here, they have more money than they know what to do with. Other people that live here are struggling paycheck to paycheck, and maybe not even that. How many people are experiencing homelessness? How many are experiencing a deep sense of loneliness? What are the needs that are represented here? What are their religious beliefs? What are their thoughts about God? What are their connections to faith of any sort? How many would consider themselves to be followers of Jesus. These are the people that we're trying to reach. And not only are we trying to reach these people, but we are these people. I hope that in seeing this, we can get a vision for what it looks like to try to have, to try to have a presence on the west side for the gospel for each of us to take on sort of that mentality and that mindset that we are embedded missionaries here. Look at that. Some of you live there. Some of you live where this photo was taken. What does it look like for you to be an embedded missionary where you are? Some of you work here. What does it look like to be an embedded missionary where you live? We're no better than anybody else. As a church community, we're, we're no better than anybody else. We're just people who've met Jesus. And we want to introduce people to Jesus. We want to introduce these people to Jesus. You may have heard the phrase, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And no offense, but that's how I feel about us that we have nothing to offer in, our, in and of ourselves, but we can tell people how they can come to know Jesus who can change their lives. And that's why we planned a collective church, so that people would come to know Jesus and that by being a part of this community, they would find family where they can grow in their relationship 
with Jesus. And so what an amazing thing it is for me today to stand here and see what this has become. What an amazing thing God has done in assembling us together as a community following him, and it can only be attributed to a work of the Holy Spirit. When a church loses a teaching pastor like we have this year, here there's something that happens, and, and people in ministry know this. You lose people. People scatter. People take off. That's just the way it is. I've seen it. I've walked through that experience with other friends of mine, other pastors that have been in transition or that I've served with, and I've seen it happen. When, there, when you lose a teaching pastor and there's a transition there, you just lose people. It's just the way that it works. And so when we lost Pastor Casey and he relocated with his family to, to Phoenix as they felt God moving them on, um, I wondered if we would lose people because that's just the norm. But then we didn't. And it wasn't because Casey wasn't well-loved, because he was. But on Casey's last Sunday, if you were here, you might remember, I stood about right there, and we were honoring him and saying goodbye, and I said to him, and I, and I, and I commended him for having friends, but not fans, because a pastor shouldn't have fans. You see, what unites us and what brings us together and what keeps us together is no dude no teaching pastor, nobody, no human. What unites us and brings us together is Jesus. What unites us and brings us together is the Holy Spirit. And practically speaking, part of what unites us is uh, our shared commitment to one another and to what we're doing together, to our shared mission and our vision. We saw how the early church started out united in one heart and mind, in one accord. But what started out with such unity, we see that later on it would require some nurturing and some TLC. And we see appeal after appeal in the pages of scripture as the gospel advances and as churches are being planted and, and, and as the rest of the New Testament is written, we see that there's these appeals and these exhortations to, for, the, for the church, for local believers, for, for local churches, for there to be a, a oneness that is experienced, for them to be, to be remaining united in one heart and mind. You see what was happening, because as people would move away from walking in the Spirit, as they had been joined together and begun in the Spirit, as people would move away from walking in the Spirit, they would revert back to the things that made them distinct from one another. All these different people coming together united in the spirit, and as they walk away from that and they move away from that unity in the spirit, they become more distinct, and the things that would normally divide them would reemerge, destroying the oneness. As a collective church, we want to stay united with one heart and one mind. We want to remain true to what God has called us to together. So what I'd like to do this morning is revisit who we are as a collective church. I mean that as a noun and as an adjective. And if you don't know what a noun or adjective is, I'm sure we have teachers in the room that can explain it to you. For some, this will be a reminder of similar things that we've talked about in the past. For others, this will be new and an introduction. And even for those that have been around and heard some of these things before, we'll be presenting it in a little bit of a different way than uh, you might be used to. But we want to sort of go over this stuff to sort of be reminded, what is this all about? And as we are joining together in God's mission, what does it look like for us to move forward together? So over the years, we developed a framework for missional clarity that we would like to, to share with you this morning. And um, Derek, if you can put that first slide up. There we go. This framework for missional clarity that communicates what we're about and creates alignment for our ministry efforts. And as, as you can see, as it, as, as it visually is depicted there, it can literally be thought of as a frame. And within this frame, yeah, we will see how it involves the mission, values, strategies, measures that serve the vision of collective church. 
So let's start with mission. Like in a lot of other churches and organizations, we have a mission statement. A mission statement describes the actions we take to help bring about the vision that, or, or, or what we want to see. Mission asks the question, what are we doing? And it's important, if we're all a part of this together, for us to be able to, to get an answer to that question. What are we doing? Our mission is to reach, teach, and equip people to follow Jesus. That's what we're doing. Seeking to reach, teach, and equip people to follow Jesus. Jesus gave what has been called the Great Commission to his followers in Matthew chapter 28. And this is what he said, Go, th go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So within that couple of verses there, in verse 19, we have go therefore and make disciples. That's the reaching part. Then it says teaching them in verse 20. Guess what part that is? It's the teaching part. Trick question. And then he says to observe all that I, I'm sorry. Uh, and then he says to observe all that I have commanded you. And that's where the equipping comes in. To observe is to help people to be able to live these things out and to put them into practice. That's what it means to observe these things. So that's where the equipping comes in, where we, are, we want to practically help people to follow Jesus. So that's our mission. And then we have our values. Our values sort of ask the question, or they answer the question, why do we do what we do? What is it that drives us? What are our values? I'll explain what these are in a minute, but as an overview, we value ministry boundaries, meaningful discipleship, and holistic, sorry, meaningful community, sorry. Yes, my notes were wrong, but I caught it. Meaningful community and holistic discipleship. So first, ministry boundaries. Our ministry and missional efforts have always been focused within the 23 neighborhoods of the West Side. That has always been our mission field and it always will be. Back in the early days, as many of you know, when people had questions about collective church, they'd ask, what is this church that you're planting and what is it all about and what does it mean to be a part of it and all that kind of stuff. As some of you experienced as we sat down and we had coffee together and we had these conversations, You'll know that we weren't inviting people to just come join us so we, could, so we could grow a crowd. What we were specifically doing is inviting people to join us on mission. We said, this is who we are. This is what we're about. This is our mission field. These are the people that we're trying to reach. And we weren't trying to convince anybody, and we weren't trying to sell anything to anybody. We just said, this is what we're about. Would you like to join us on mission? And we're inviting you to be able to do that. That's what it was, that's what, that's, that's what it's always been about. And we took on that mindset, as I mentioned earlier, of being embedded missionaries here on the West Side. And we have these ministry boundaries that sort of like acknowledge that the reality is we're not going to reach everybody. And we're not going to be able to practically reach everyone and do so effectively. So we wanted to identify who it is that we're trying to reach. To be a, a community of people, we wanted to be uh, people that lived in relative proximity to one another rather than being commuters that just come together on Sundays. Why does proximity matter? Only for the obvious reasons. So we can effectively serve one another so we can care for one another, so we can participate in discipleship together and encourage one another in following Jesus, so our lives can actually intersect, so we can share our lives together, so we can build relationships with one another and with our neighbors. That's why proximity matters. And it has been such an, a surreal experience to watch people love one another and care for one another and disciple one another in such a way that makes this city seem so small. In this massive city, people can have, people have, have real relationships with people and are living in relative proximity with one another, which creates these opportunities to be a true community together where our lives actually intersect. It's an amazing thing to see. 
especially when there have been crises that we've, or crises, it's probably the proper word, I don't know, I'll look it up later. But when there's been a crisis that has taken place, to watch you guys rally without waiting for my permission or my direction. And you've been able to do that because we live in relative proximity to one another. We want to serve people well. And so because of that, we launched a new Connect process this year. That's one of the developments of this last year. And uh, the whole idea was to help people connect in community care and discipleship. We divided up the West Side into five ministry regions where most people facing ministry took place. And we had Bob up here sharing earlier as one of our neighborhood ministry coordinators. And it's not his job to just pull off neighborhood dinners, but to help coordinate and lead ministry efforts within that particular region. So we divided the West Side into five ministry regions and we appointed neighborhood ministry teams, teams of three in each region to spearhead those ministry efforts. And also, uh, which, which looks like even practically providing ministry opportunities to, to those that live in each region to also ensure that people are being the recipients of the care that they're also providing for other people. We wanted to be intentional about that because people matter. And so we want to maximize our efforts and we don't want to dilute what we're able to do by spreading it out too broadly, geographically speaking. Because we live in relative proximity to one another, we could actually have any kind of hope of actually getting something done and effectively serving other people. But our ministry boundaries are not just geographic. We're a simple church, and we don't have a ministry for every category of life. That would only, we believe that would only create competition, and it's not just what we believe. I think studies have shown, it's just the reality of things, that it would create competition for time, attention, and resources both mine and yours. So we say no to a lot of things. We decide that we're going to be as streamlined as we possibly can be and that everything that we do will be aligned within our discipleship efforts and we want to trim away the distractions in order to take care of what is most necessary. And we genu genuinely think, we really do, that if you fully engage in... in um, in, in what we're doing together, you will experience spiritual growth. And that's if you fully engage. If you don't fully engage, you're not gonna get all that you can get out of it. But Sunday gatherings are, obvi are, are obvious why that's important. Our neighborhood dinners, or whatever, these, all these different things that we're doing, and our discipleship groups, our Bible engagement, all that, which we get into in a bit, but all that is important. But we actually don't think, as a relatively simple church, that while some of these things are multifaceted, it doesn't require a whole lot of our time. So we're encouraging people to fully engage in these things, and we fully believe that as you do, you will experience, and we all will experience, spiritual growth. We believe these ministry boundaries will help maximize our effectiveness and uh, help us to make a meaningful impact. So we have these ministry boundaries. Then we have meaningful community. The church is people. We say all the time, the church is not a place where, but a people who. The church is not an event that we attend. If it's just an event, we can remain relationally detached, right? We don't have to know anybody. It's like showing up at a concert or something. That's an assembly. That's a gathering of sorts. But you don't talk to anybody. You pay attention to what's happening on the stage, and then when it's over, you go home. But church, the church is people. It's not an event that happens 52 times a year. And we don't want to remain relationally detached from one another. And we don't want to disregard the obligation that we have to one another. And we certainly, if we were to be detached in that way and treat this kind of stuff as just an event and our existence as a way to gather together at events, that certainly wouldn't resemble what we see happening in the early church at all. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we've been given access as fellow citizens with the saints. We've been given access as, full, as fellow citizens with the saints, and we are members of the household of God. So if God is our father, what does that make us? If God is our father, that makes us spiritual siblings to one another. And we can have meaningful community because we're spiritual siblings. That's not something that we often think about. We don't think of it in these terms. And we're connected to one another. 
because we're spiritual siblings. And we should seek to care for one another and look out for one another. And we want to make sure that our brothers and our sisters are doing well and growing in Jesus. So our connection point is not just the place we gather on Sundays. The point where we actually really come together in a more spiritual sense is, the, is recognizing that we're family and spiritual siblings to one another. And I want to point out that meaningful community or even being a family is not the same thing as friendship. Not everyone has a close, uh, has a close relationship with their siblings, but that doesn't make them any less family. I would say family is actually a deeper bond than friendship. Friends come and go. The family is forever, even if we don't want it to be. And when we're blessed with close friendships, have you ever noticed how we talk about that? We say things like, oh, they're family to me. That shows that we all agree with that, that family is a closer bond than friendships because we then elevate friends to family with a statement like that. Sometimes we keep our walls up, and I think this is generally our experience. We keep our walls up until we can become close friends with someone. Then we let our guard down. But we hold everybody else relationally hostage, so to speak, and we won't let our lives intersect with other people until we're friends. And now that we're friends, okay, now I'll, I'll let you see what's going on in my life. Now I'll share my life with you. But imagine the change it would make if we related one, to one another as family first and then from there allowed friendships to form. You don't have to be in a close friendship with someone in order to love them, in order to serve them, and to show, and to show them care or anything like that. What if we started relating to one another as family first? And I don't even care if that looks like, hey, I wanna love you and serve you in this moment as you're going through this. What's your name again? Because you're fulfilling your obligation as family members. And you might not know each other as friends, but we have a connection and a bond that is stronger than friendship. We start with a, a connection and a bond that is first family, and it's from there that we can develop friendships. And friendships are hard, especially in a city like LA. I totally get it. And even if you're like, oh man, like I've had a hard time relationally connecting like at a deep friendship level with people in collective church, I don't know what to do about that in that that's part of the human experience, it's part of the LA experience. But I want each of us to be thinking of one another as at least family, where friendship can grow from that. So we value ministry boundaries, we value meaningful community, an expanded discipleship model that was a lot more holistic. We used to have all of our eggs in one, bag, one basket with our Bible engagement stuff and our discipleship groups and all of that, but, but now we've integrated other elements into that that are very much a part of an individual's discipleship experience as they follow Jesus. Things like assimilation, care, community, giving, service, and, and mission member deployment as we have opportunity to serve one another. Discipleship we know this from scripture, discipleship involves all of life. So making and equipping disciples requires a multifaceted approach. And through all of our discipleship efforts, and really what discipleship is about, is becoming more like Christ. So as we do this, as we seek to make disciples and equip disciples to follow Jesus, it's all about becoming more like Christ, which is why things like service are a part of discipleship, which is why things like giving are part of discipleship. We typically think of discipleship as a 12-week program or a four-week program or this particular ministry silo over here. But discipleship involves all of life. And so our efforts should involve that as well and not just be a compartment or department of our ministries. So now we come to our strategies. We've looked at our mission, we've looked at our values, now our strategy is how do we move people forward? It answers that question. How do we move people forward? Scripture is clear that God's plan for people to become his disciples apparently involves intentional effort on our part. Paul spoke of that dynamic when he, when he talked about in 1 Corinthians uh, 3 about how he planted the seeds. Another person who happened to be Apollos, Apollos watered and then God brought the growth. We see this beautiful picture there of where our efforts and God come together. Now, God brings the growth. We don't bring the growth. So it's really God's work that we are participating in. 
but God invites us to participate in it. And that requires intentional effort. For us to just say, hey, you know, cool, look, I'll, I'll pray about it, and God will bring the growth by, by himself, that's not his plan. And God can do that because God is God. But it's God's plan and God's design and his invitation to us, for us to participate in his work. So that's the question of how are we seeking to move people forward? What does it look like for us to be intentional in this so they can grow in their relationship with Jesus? And what are the strategies that we're using to be able to do that? We have our Sunday gatherings, neighborhood dinners, Bible engagement, equipping efforts, and mission membership. Sunday gatherings, like the early church, we gather on the first day of the week. And our Sunday gatherings represent the coming together of our church community and our spiritual family. We're assembled together as a, as a spiritual family. That's what we are. And we come together to worship Jesus, learn about Jesus, participate in communion, uh, which allows us to celebrate what Jesus has done for us and reminds us what he has done for us. And we serve others by creating an environment that facilitates all of that and more. And as it relates to our Sunday gatherings, this past year, we saw a 20% increase in our average Sunday attendance. And as I mentioned earlier, while we're not trying to grow a crowd, we do celebrate when people are joining us on mission, are becoming a community, following Jesus, so that we can continue to reach people and make disciples. So we're excited that people are joining with us in God's work. And we ended the year with 101 volunteers. You can clap. You're clapping for yourselves. <laughs> but we're so grateful for the way that our church community steps up and engages and is truly collective in nature. And the, the vast majority of our volunteers serve in a Sunday gathering context. And to have that rate of service, that's about 60% of our church family, which is well above the norm for churches. So that is awesome that God is working in your heart and in your lives in that kind of way that you'd want to participate in this to serve other people. We're so grateful for all of you, for all of you who serve and give of your time in the way that you do. So from Sunday gatherings, we move on to neighborhood dinners. And we've already you know, heard Bob share about how this is about, um, this is the main rhythm that happens within each ministry region so we can build relationships with one another and our, our neighbors as well. And, they, and these dinners provide that regular connecting point for the people that live in a given region. And about 75% of our church community is regularly participating in these neighborhood dinners. 75% of our church community is. Excited about that. Then we have Bible engagement. As we read earlier, Jesus commissioned his followers to make disciples. And every major study done on this topic has shown that the number one contributing factor to spiritual formation is people engaging the word of God together in community. That's the number one factor for spiritual formation, which is why Bible engagement has always been the driving force of our discipleship efforts. We engage scripture together by integrating a, a few different elements. It involves personal study, the preached word on Sundays, and then peer-to-peer -peer connections. So during the week, we put out our Bible, uh, we put out our, our weekly Bible passage. We post it on our social media, we post it on our website, and we're in that passage throughout the week, and we, we are personally engaged and taking on that responsibility to be in the Word of God together to get a sense of how God is speaking to our hearts and how it applies to our lives. Then we gather together on our Sundays to hear that same passage preached. So many of you participated in that this week. We looked at that passage, and now we're sort of preaching on it. And I guess now I'm moving on to some other things, but um, that's, that's how it works. And then what ends up happening is that, the, and then following that Sunday, we then gather in discipleship groups. These are gender-specific small groups of up to four people, where we now talk about the implications of these things and the application of these things, where we move beyond connecting Scripture to our lives, and we actually seek to apply it to our lives. Connecting it to our lives means, oh, I see how this relates. Applying it means this is how I'm actually going to live it out. And so that's one of the ways that we engage Scripture together. And combining and integrating these different efforts allows us to glean the benefits of what it means to be in the Word personally on our own, to be able to gather together in a context like this where the Word is preached 
and then in a sort of micro community, I guess, this small group of up to four people, we can work out together, like here's the things I'm wrestling with, or here's how scripture comforted me this week and encouraged me, or, or here's the thing that, that God's really kicking me in the face about, and I need to like deny this part of my life and say no to this sin or whatever. So engaging scripture is important to us. Now, in the church world, the church world can be a weird world, and sometimes because of that, we come in with expectations, and people hear about our discipleship groups like, oh, I get it, that's a regular you know, midweek rhythm. So we gather on Sundays, and then we have discipleship groups. Well, yes and no, but our discipleship groups, while they get a lot of the attention, they're actually only one part of this three-part process. This, this, this one part of a three-part integrated thing. Our discipleship group is just where we work through the application with other people, what we've already been studying on our own and what we studied on Sunday. And over half of our church is participating in this currently, which is good. I'd like to see that bump up a little bit, but that's still great. Then we have our equipping efforts. This year, we put on workshops on how to study the Bible and how to have gospel conversations with people. And I'm excited about this in particular because with Ryan now here, we're going to be able to ramp, out, ramp up our efforts in this and, and put a lot more energy into that. I'm really excited about that. And we actually have another uh, Gospel Conversations workshop coming up in uh, this next month. And we'll give you guys more information about that. And then lastly, as far as our strategies goes, we have mission membership. Mission membership was designed to, to provide people with a way to express a meaningful and ongoing commitment to one another and to our shared mission and vision. That's what mission membership was designed to be and what it's all about. Unfortunately, this has been on hold as we were seeking to sort of reformat and retool it a little bit, and uh, we wanted to make it a more robust thing and, and transition it to something that uh, was more of an equipping process. And it's all my fault because I totally underestimated how much time I had to be able to divert my time and energy into that. And so it's been on a hold a lot longer than it was supposed to be. And that really bums me out because what this is really about is helping people to express the commitment that already exists in their heart. And people ask me all the time, Lorenzo, look, I'm so, like, I'm down, I'm in, like, give me this opportunity to express this. When can we think I'm mission members? It's like, well, the good news is Ryan and I are already working towards relaunching it in the new year. And so we're going to be reopening that in January. And I'm so excited about what that will mean for um, those that take that step of mission membership and then even how it will maximize and create new opportunities for those mission members to serve other people. So those are our strategies. Those are our strategies. Now we come to measures. How do we, this, this answers the question, how do we measure success? As you can probably tell, if you didn't already know, discipleship has always been one of our greatest ministry priorities. But it's easy to think that we're a church that's all about discipleship, and it's easy to talk about it. It's super easy to talk about it, like most things. But it's a completely different thing to be able to live that out in real life. But we can talk about it without getting anything done. That's the problem. So what we wanted to do, and we introduced this earlier in the year, is we want to introduce... Uh, what we, we introduced what we regard, we think we did this last February, we, we, uh, we introduced what we regard to be a profile or the identity of a disciple. We even did a short series of talks on it. So the profile of a disciple or the ministry identity of a disciple involves being a responsible follower of Jesus. And I don't have time to get into this at a deep level, but to be a responsible follower of Jesus, so this means living in submission and obedience to Jesus, following his word, to be a responsible family member. We've already talked what it means about to be a family member and to be a spiritual sibling to one another. So this is where we are committed to one another in the good and the bad because sometimes, like any family, we can be dysfunctional. Let's work through that. Let's work through that for God's glory. We want to be responsible stewards. This is recognizing that all that God has entrusted to us where we, and, and where we are contributing our time, our talents, and treasures to his purposes. So a lot of times when we talk about and we think of terms like stewardship, we think money. Well, sure, that includes that, but it's so much more than that. Think of it, and that's why we break it down to time, talent, and treasure. The time that you have, the talents that you have, the, the skills, gifts, and abilities that God has given you, even the experiences that you've been through that God can use as you share those things with other people. 
Second Corinthians chapter one talks about how we comfort others with the same comfort we've received from God. You become, as God comforts you, you become a steward of comfort. And you can share that comfort with other people. So we're stewards of all that God has entrusted to us. And so we sort of need to look at that and consider what, is it, what has God entrusted to me? And how can I be a good steward of these things? And the, the good thing with many of these things is that we are not the owners of these things. We are the possessors. It all belongs to God. Like people have, we've, we've talked about this in the past and, and sometimes we struggle with, as it, does, as it does relate to money, we talk about, oh, how much of my money should I give to God? Wrong question. The question is, how much of God's money should I invest back in his purposes? Completely changes everything, doesn't it? Because it all belongs to him. It's all his. And that's why we do it. It's not just this weird Christian ritual or this weird Christian practice where we take the money that we have and we're supposed to pay dues. No, no, no. The whole point is that it all belongs to him, which is why we put it towards his purposes. So we want to be responsible stewards. And then the last thing is we want to be responsible disciple makers, reaching others and helping them grow in their relationship with Jesus. We want to be responsible disciple makers. So as we seek to make disciples, that's what we want them to look like. And we believe that to be a biblical definition. And we anticipate that this will guide our discipleship efforts for years to come and help us measure our effectiveness and also give individuals a way to self-assess and see sort of how they're growing as disciples. So everything we've covered, our mission, our values, strategies, measures, provide a framework for missional clarity, and together they serve the vision of collective church. And the vision answers the question, where are we headed? The vision of collective church is to become a healthy and multiplying expression of Christ's church in each of the 23 neighborhoods that make up the West Side. What exactly does this look like? I don't know. That's the point. This can involve church planning, which would be awesome. I'd love to, to see us be able to participate in more, chan- more churches being planted on the West Side and beyond or wherever. Um, it would be great if we can do that. But sometimes it, it could also mean like people like thinking of themselves as embedded missionaries and, and thinking like, okay, there's a neighborhood where we don't have a, a lot of gospel presence. I'm going to move to that neighborhood and be on fire for Jesus and be serving Jesus in that neighborhood. So that's how we can be a part of an expression of Christ's church, whether it's formal church plants or just individuals that live with intentionality, gospel intentionality in particular neighborhoods. So however this plays out, we say yes and amen to it all. So our vision is kind of specific. We want to be healthy and we want to be multiplying within the 23 neighborhoods that God has called us to. But it's also intentionally vague to make room for what God wants to do. And um, our vision is rooted in what he commissioned us to do where he has called us to do it. In Matthew chapter 16, and this is why we're intentionally vague about it. This is the vague element. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus was taking responsibility for his church, for the building up of the church, and ensuring that it would thrive and accomplish its purposes. So we need to make sure that we don't engineer and design Jesus out of this. We need to allow him to do his thing. And as we've been empowered as his witnesses by the Holy Spirit, we trust that the Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us. And it's within these efforts that they are infused with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've been empowered to be these witnesses, to be able to live these things out. And so this is what we've gone over. This is what we're inviting each and every one of you to participate in. And it hits at the collective nature of our church community. This is for all of us to participate in. And as I look at the state of things, I'm completely blown away by what we've been able to see. We named our, our, our church community Collective Church because we thought it was biblical, but it was also aspirational. And we couldn't have predicted that, we were actually going to, that it would actually go in this direction. And we, we love that we've been able to actually live that out, that collective nature. But back to our text and the disciples of Jesus that we see there. After Jesus' three years of ministry, in his resurrection, the disciples were asking, what's next? So as we turn four, and having gone through some things ourselves, we're in a similar spot where we're asking, what's next? This last week, I signed a contract for us to be here in this venue through 2020. 
Yeah. Let's clap for that. The church is not a place where, but a people who, but places are places, by definition, where people gather. And so places still matter. And this has been so great to be able to have this place every weekend with you guys. And it's through your giving that I was able to sign that contract so we can cover the cost of that. We also, as I mentioned last week, we now have a, a, a majority local board, which is huge for us. We now have an operations coordinator who we introduced last week, April Medina, who will help us be responsible stewards of the things that God has entrusted to us and, and, and help us steward the ministry. We're going to be opening up mission membership again, which I mentioned. And then also, as I mentioned, we're going to be ramping up our equipping efforts. And uh, yeah, so that's what, we, that's what we have to look forward to. But in some ways, we're going to just keep on keeping on. We're going to just keep on doing what we've always been doing. And, um, and just as it was with Jesus' followers, we're just getting started. So this is who we are, what we're about, and what we're always going to be about. And uh, there have been times when churches have taken on the role of the prosecutor in relation to culture, pointing out the guilt of our culture. But Jesus said... You will be my witnesses, not my prosecutors. And so we need to be focused on what does it look like to not be pointing the nasty finger at, at culture and pointing out what's wrong with culture, but seeking to engage culture as witnesses of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit and enabled to do so. So our job is just to stand up and to bear witness of God's grace and love and how God has changed us how his love has won us over, how his love has reoriented our hearts. And so we need the Holy Spirit to do this work. If you don't know Jesus, we want you to know that Jesus loves you. And this long talk that you've had to sit through, this is really about you guys in the sense that we love you and we love Jesus and Jesus loves you. And we want you to know and experience the love of Jesus. It's not about pushing our agendas on anybody. It's about engaging God's work because people matter. And we would love for you to be able to put your faith in Jesus. So to our church community, I'd say, let's get after it. Let's get after it. Let's continue to reach people and make disciples on the west side. Let's pray.